Back in my days when I was an English teacher, one of my favourite novels that I got to teach was a book by Paul Theroux called The Mosquito Coast. Uh, you may have, may have read it or seen the movie. Uh, the hero of the book, uh, or perhaps the anti-hero really, is a guy called Ali Fox. Uh, he's an amateur inventor and eccentric uh, who becomes increasingly disgusted with the state of decay that he sees around him uh, in American society. How it has become, in his words, a dope-taking, door-locking, ulcerated danger zone of rabid scavengers and criminal millionaires and moral sneaks. Uh, and that's just on a good day. And so he heads off with his family, uh, leaving New Jersey behind to make a new life in the jungles of Honduras on the Mosquito Coast. Well, this Ali Fox is a man of many theories. And one of his theories is this, that he says, there are parts of the Bible that no one has ever read, just as there are parts of the world where no one has ever set foot. You think that's bad, he asks? You think that's bad? It's anything but. It's the empty spaces that will save us. And so he heads off with his family into the empty spaces of Honduras. Well, for many of us, I suspect, there are vast stretches of the Old Testament that are kind of like those empty spaces on the map. And heading off into these middle chapters of Isaiah, as we are in these next three weeks, it can feel a little bit like heading off into the jungle, into a virgin wilderness. The first 12 chapters of Isaiah seem, for many of us, kind of familiar, at least in parts. You know, we read bits of it at Christmas time. Uh, the last 27 chapters from chapter 40 to the end, well, you know, if you're musical, you kind of sing those bits in the Messiah and so on. But the middle section, the middle section from chapter 13 to 39, this vast kind of mass of chapters in the middle, it can feel like an impenetrable forest. And uh, if you're like me, um, you know, you venture in from time to time and you have a bit of a look around, but then after a chapter or two, you think, well, this is, this is kind of hard. Uh, this is a bit strange. And um, so we retreat back to more, more comfortable, more familiar, uh, less alien parts of the Bible. If that has been your experience with, uh, with this part of the Bible and with others like it, two uh, suggestions this afternoon. The first is, is kind of obvious. And it's simply this. If you're going to head off uh, into the wilderness, uh, into the jungle, it's, it's, uh, it's useful, at least the first few times, it's useful just to take a, a, a good map uh, to help you orient yourself. Uh, These chapters are are not actually blank spaces on the map. People have been there before. Uh, Human feet have trodden these paths. Uh, And there are people who love the Word of God, devout scholars, who have poured over uh, every verse and every word of every verse in these chapters. Uh, So there's good help out there. Uh, So it's a good idea, I think, to um, to get hold um, of a good commentary. And if nothing else, just look at the opening page. Uh, Look at the outline that it gives of um, the structure um, of the book and uh, let it be a kind of map for you. Uh, now when you read Isaiah yourself you may find different landmarks and, and different patterns um, after a few readings through and, and that's fantastic um, but at least um, taking a map with you is a bit of a start so here by way of a, a map for this middle section of Isaiah um, here on the overhead is the way that um, Barry Webb sets out the structure uh, of these chapters in his commentary um, you might have seen it called uh, uh, On Eagle's Wings um, in the Bible Speaks Today series it's a great little commentary um, as you'll see from the top half Uh, The whole book of Isaiah is really a movement from Jerusalem uh, to New Jerusalem. Uh, You'll see it in in seven parts, and you'll see how the middle part, chapter uh, part 4, chapter 36 to 39, is really quite different from the rest. 
Uh, it's basically a narrative history kind of part, and it acts as a hinge. Uh, the first three parts, uh, the first half of Isaiah, uh, mainly deal with the Assyrian crisis, the crisis of the Assyrian invasion in Isaiah's own day, in the 8th century BC. The last three parts uh, look forward to the second great crisis, the really great crisis of Israel's history, uh, which was the Babylonian invasion and captivity. And, uh, and in both halves of Isaiah, wrapped up in all that, there are, are glimpses forward, at the, particularly at the end of each section, uh, glimpses forward beyond Assyria uh, and beyond Babylon uh, to the coming of Messiah and the end of the world. So the part we're looking at over these next few weeks, from chapter 13 to 39, this great kind of um, jungle you know, in the middle of Isaiah, is really part 2 and part 3 and part 4 yep, of the book of Isaiah. And you'll see... Uh, from the chapter headings on the bottom half within those chapters uh, how chapters 13 to 27 the first section there uh, those chapters are mostly about the other nations around Israel Uh, it's messages about how they are under the just condemnation and judgement of God as well uh, as well as Israel uh, because God is Lord over the whole earth not just a tribal God over Israel and in the middle of all that there's a little bit in chapter 20 um, that looks like I put it in just to see if, um, if you were awake uh, about Isaiah going naked for three years. So that's the first session, a suggestion I want to make about these unfamiliar chapters in Isaiah. When you go out to explore them, it's not a bad idea to take a map. And that's, that's a pretty good map, I reckon, for finding your way through these chapters. The second suggestion is this. When you read these chapters in Isaiah, I want to encourage you not to be put off, not to be put off by how strange and unfamiliar and alien they are to our ears. But instead, to embrace those things and to thank God for them. Not to be put off by the alienness of these chapters, but to embrace it and to thank God for it. I want to to encourage you to thank God for the way that he has preserved for us this word from him, this word that comes to us from another world, from another time, from another culture, right out of our universe almost, and yet that speaks to our hearts and challenges our world and our whole way of seeing the world. I want to urge you to step right back into Isaiah's world and then stand there and look back, look back at 21st century Sydney and our lives today and Sydney Uni from that vantage point. And it's kind of like standing on the moon and looking back down on Earth. You see the same things but from an incredibly different perspective. And that's what we're going to do this afternoon. We're going to jump back into Isaiah Uh, into the 8th century BC, into chapter 13 and chapter 14. And we're going to have a look at these words that God gave to Isaiah to speak to the people of his day and to see how those same words are God's words to us. It's a word, verse 1. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, It's a word, verse 1, that's about Babylon. Uh, This whole section about God's judgment on the nations begins, begins with a word, a vision, an oracle that God gives to Isaiah concerning Babylon. Now, if you're reading Isaiah through sequentially, that comes as a bit of a surprise. Uh, this is the first mention of Babylon in Isaiah. And it comes as a surprise because Babylon was not the centre of the world. It was not the centre of the world in Isaiah's day. Nineveh was. Now, Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Babylon wasn't a nothing. Uh, it was a significant vassal state of the Assyrian Empire. It was on the rise. It had already had one period of greatness if you uh, did first-year legal institutions Uh, You'll know about Hammurabi and the Code of Hammurabi and Babylonians kind of their first period of of, uh, uh, shining in the sun. 
and they're on their way toward another empire very soon. Um, but at the moment, it was kind of in between, in between empires. It certainly wasn't one of the great superpowers of Isaiah's day. Um, in Isaiah's day, Egypt was the great superpower on the way down, and Assyria the great power on the way up. And it was Assyria that dominated the headlines. It was Assyria uh, that was every day on the front page of the Jerusalem Post, and every heart in, in Jerusalem quaked at the name Assyria. But Isaiah, as a prophet, speaks beyond the first range of hills to the second and the third and the fourth, and he sees that it is Babylon, not Assyria. Babylon, not Assyria, that is going to end up destroying Jerusalem and taking the nation off into exile. And it is Babylon that he focuses on in the the first of these chapters about the nations. And what he prophesies is Babylon's end. Before Babylon has even risen, he prophesies Babylon's end and Babylon's destruction. Uh, He describes it in chapter 13 from Babylon's vantage point mainly and then in chapter 14 from Jerusalem's and all the other oppressed nations under under their foot. And he begins in chapter 13 by talking about the weapons of wrath, the weapons of wrath that God is going to use for the destruction of the city. Chapter 13 verse 2. Raise a banner on a bare hilltop. Shout to them, beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my holy ones, I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his wrath to destroy the whole country. You read the first few verses and uh, I reckon to start with you think he's talking about angels or something. Yep. Um, About my holy ones, uh, my warriors, uh, that God has summoned from the ends of the earth and the heavens to execute his wrath. But when the Old Testament talks about holy ones, as it does in verse 3, it doesn't necessarily mean good or righteous or morally pure. It just means set apart by God for a purpose, uh, for his use. Uh, so in the, uh, the tabernacle and the, and the, and the temple uh, in Israel's worship, there were pots and pans that were holy to the Lord. Um, not because they were particularly righteous pieces of bronze and silver, uh, particularly well-behaved bits of pottery, uh, but because they were designated for a particular purpose and a particular use in the service of God. They were instruments in his hands. And here in Isaiah 13, as God talks about these weapons of his wrath, these instruments in his hand, these holy ones, his warriors to execute his wrath. You don't have to get too far before you discover who they are. Skip down verse 15. They're not particularly righteous, pure, merciful, gentle, holy, well-behaved in that sense. Verse 15. Whoever is captured in this destruction of Babylon will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives ravished. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. 
The Medes were the barbarians of the 8th century BC. They lived off on the eastern fringe of the civilised world, always threatening to kind of boil over and overwhelm it. The Assyrians were a cruel and ruthless empire, but the Medes were that much more cruel, that much more barbaric, that much more out of control. They represented all that was violent and wild and frightening in the world of the 8th century BC. And God says to Babylon, I can use even them, I can use even them as my warriors, as the weapons of my right and righteous judgement. And when the time finally came for Babylon, it was the Medes and the Persians who overwhelmed the city who walked in without resistance in 540 and then crushed completely in 518. And back in Isaiah's day, way before Babylon was even an empire, God says to Babylon, your days are already numbered and I will bring them to an end and even the Medes, even the Medes are under my control and I can use to bring judgment on you. It's a reminder of the way that God works in history, isn't it? Just because God isn't constantly sending down armies of shining angels from heaven and blazing fireballs out of the sky doesn't mean that God is inactive or uninvolved, a kind of a non-interventionist God up there kind of just watching from a distance, uninvolved in the history of the world. He is well able to use the actions of human beings, even, even particularly violent, evil, out of control, chaotic cruel human beings he's well able to use human evil to achieve his ultimate right and good purposes he's able to work through the whole texture of the the, the messiness of human history towards the purposes that he has planned he's able to use the armies of the means as the weapons of his wrath supremely of course supremely he did that in the crucifixion of Jesus uh, when Evil men with evil motives crucified his own son and by their very actions fulfilled the plans of God for your salvation and reconciliation to God and mine. So God speaks about in these verses the end of Babylon and he speaks about the weapons of wrath that will accomplish it and then in the verses that follow he speaks about the great reversal the great reversal that it will involve when Babylon is brought low. Have a look at the series of contrasts. It'll involve verse 19 22. It'll involve the jewel of kingdoms. The jewel of kingdoms being overthrown. Verse 19 Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonians' pride, will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in throughout all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there, no shepherd will rest his flocks there, for desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will howl in her strongholds, jackals in her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand and her days will not be prolonged. At the peak of its empire, Babylon was the icon, the icon of luxury and wealth and sophistication. The hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar were one of the wonders of the ancient world. And God says before Babylon's glory days of the 6th century had even arrived, God says there will come a day when hyenas will howl in her strongholds 
and jackals will make their home in her luxurious palaces. It'll be a reversal. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, it'll be a reversal that will involve the captors being made captive. Israel, the nation that Babylon deported, will one day come home and they will possess the nations and make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. The tables will be turned. It's a, a prophecy that the New Testament tells us is fulfilled not in the politics of the Middle East, not in the Arab-Israeli conflict or something, but in the way that Gentile believers, Gentile Christians like many of us, have come under the rule in the peaceable kingdom of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, <coughs> under, under his rule uh, in his kingdom. And then thirdly, verses 4 to 6, the end of Babylon will be the kind of reversal that involves the oppressor of nations being broken. So Isaiah writes a taunt, uh, a sort of victory song for the liberated oppressed to sing on the day when the oppressor is brought down. He writes verse 3, On the day when the Lord gives you relief from suffering and turmoil and cruel bondage, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. Then verses 7 to 8, there's a fourth reversal. And it has to do do with the way the Babylonians laid waste the environments of the nations that they conquered. So on the day when Babylon falls, Isaiah pictures even the land itself, even the ground itself and the trees of the field singing for joy. Verse 7, all the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the pine trees and the cedars of Lebanon exult over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no woodsman comes to cut us down. God's victory over evil comes as a liberation not only for the people but for the very earth, yes? And even the trees sing. Even the trees sing when Babylon is brought low. And then fifthly, verses 9 to 11, it's working towards a kind of climax here. Fifthly, there's a reversal involving death itself. Babylon, the mighty and powerful, the, the empire that inflicted death upon others, the empire whose name was death for everyone else, Babylon is brought down to the grave. And Isaiah paints this almost comic picture of uh, the word spreading through Sheol. The rumour kind of rippling through the abode of the dead that Babylon is coming down to occupy its place. Verse 9, The grave below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you. All those who were leaders in the world, it makes them rise from their thrones, those who were kings over the nations. They will all respond and they will say to you, you also have become weak as we are. Join the club. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave along with the noise of your hearts. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. And one last reversal. Finally, verses 12 to 15, it's a climactic contrast as Isaiah pictures Babylon in its relationship to God. Have a look, verse 12 of chapter 14. 
How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And so, verses 16 to 21, the world looks on and ponders. The world looks on and ponders. A stare long and hard at the fallen empire and they say verse 16 is this the man who shook the earth and made the kingdoms tremble the man who made the world a desert who overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home is this the man if you ever read the uh, Percy Shelley poem Ozymandias in your school days, you can't read these lines, I reckon, without remembering that poem. Do you know how it goes? It's the one that goes, you know, I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, a shattered visage lies, half sunk, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which still survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And so in verses 22 to 23, it's God who speaks the last word. Verse 22, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will cut off from Babylon her name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction declares the Lord Almighty. I want to finish by saying a few words about Babylon and you and me. Because these words here in Isaiah are not just dead, irrelevant words from 27 centuries ago about the passing events of the time. There is a reason why they were recorded here in God's word for us and there is a relevance that they have to us 27 centuries later. In the first place, there is an implicit encouragement to us in verse 16, I think, of chapter 14. There is an implicit encouragement to us to ponder Babylon. We are among the nations of the world who are described there as standing and staring and pondering over the fall of Babylon. We live in a culture that is not much into pondering, Uh, certainly not pondering the events of 2,500 years ago. Uh, We're encouraged uh, in our culture, I think, to live as if today is all that there is and all that matters. 
and we're bombarded with information about the celebrities and the fashions and the technology and the busyness and the opportunities of today as if it was all so important and as if it was all that, that is and all that matters. We don't think much about yesterday, we don't think much about tomorrow and we hardly think at all about eternity. That's the normal human mindset really and I think it's especially the mindset of our culture and our generation. If it's not instant, then it's not important. And those of us who are Christians can fall prey to it as well. Uh, We're victims of our culture in many ways. Uh, So we read a passage in the Bible like Isaiah 13 and 14 and we're tempted to uh, to rush in and rush out and try and grab some little verse from somewhere in the chapter uh, to get some little instant inspirational message about our own lives and about our own circumstances, some little spiritual chicken McNugget that you can buy at the drive-thru and dash away. And if we can't find it, we think to ourselves, well, is this chapter really relevant to me? Uh, I think I'll go and read somewhere else. But that's not how these chapters work, is it? Uh, They speak to us at a different kind of pace and with a different kind of depth. They speak to you and me years after the rise and the fall of Babylon, centuries after, and they force us to stop and to ponder the fact that where there was once a city that was the centre of the world, now there is a heap of rubble. Where there were once luxurious houses, now there are jackals and hyenas. As it says a little later in Isaiah, in chapter 40, all people are like grass. And their glory, all their glory, is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever so easy, it is so easy for us to get caught up in the illusion that the fashions and the opinions and the preoccupations and the issues of today are so important, that they are all important, that they are what reality is and the Bible tells us, remember Babylon remember Babylon it's all going to fade away God is going to sweep it away with a broom like like old cigarette butts and ice cream wrappers. You're going to sweep it away with the broom. If you want to live your life for something that counts, you've got to live it it for something more permanent, more real than that. Remember Babylon. (coughs) But the Bible doesn't just talk about Babylon as a story from the distant past, as one of the many empires of the world that have risen and fallen over the years, as the historical city of Nebuchadnezzar and the Hanging Gardens and so on. Uh, It's bigger than that. Uh, It's not just an empire, it's the empire uh, in the Bible. And years and years later, centuries after the rise and fall of the Babylonian Empire, the Bible is still talking about Babylon as a present and a future reality. So in the New Testament letter of 1 Peter, um, Peter the writer starts and finishes the letter uh, by saying that he's writing to exiles and that he's writing from Babylon which is almost certainly, in his day, Rome. And the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible, devotes a whole chapter toward the end of the Bible to talking about the fall of Babylon as a future event that will take place at the end of the world. 
Because the assumption of the Bible is that from now until Jesus comes again, there is always going to be a Babylon. There is always going to be an empire or a city or a civilization or a culture that epitomizes human power and arrogance and blindness in every generation. And this side of heaven, God's people are always going to be living as exiles in the shadow of Babylon. And we need to be reminded that Babylon will not last forever. That Babylon will fall. What is the Babylon of today? Well, at a, at a superficial level in some circles, a year or two ago, it might have been tempting uh, to say that it was Baghdad. After all, Baghdad is just 70 kilometres or so up the road from Babylon. Uh, it was part of the axis of evil. Saddam had built one of his presidential palaces right next to the, the ruins of the ancient city. Uh, he tried to reconstruct the ruins of Babylon as a tourist attraction, a kind of kitsch tourist attraction with 60 million bricks with his own name on them. But then you read the description of Babylon in Revelation chapter 18 and there's a lot in that chapter that sounds a whole lot more like America than like Iraq. And then you think about it a bit more and you notice that the sort of attitudes that this chapter and that one talks about are just as much Sydney attitudes as they are New York attitudes. And you realise that there's a tendency in the human heart to create Babylon wherever we go. You read that book, The Mosquito Coast, and I think Paul Theroux gets it exactly right. Ali Fox uh, leaves New Jersey behind, heads off into the jungles of Honduras, and he ends up by, by halfway through the novel having created uh, his own little empire, um, off in the empty spaces in the jungles. Um, he's created his own Babylon, his own little empire, just every bit as bad as the America he left behind. In the end, it's human arrogance and pride, human arrogance and pride, that makes up Babylon. And it is that arrogance that God is going to judge at the last day. That's the bottom line of his judgment that Isaiah speaks about. So when Isaiah talks in chapter 13 about the fall of Babylon, he's really talking not just about one city, but about the judgment of the whole world. Did you pick that up? Verse 11 in chapter 13, echoing a chorus line that ran through chapters 1 to 12 of Isaiah. Verse 11, I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and I will humble the pride of the ruthless. If you and I are Christians, and, and many of us are, then we need to live as people who know that that day is coming. We need to live as people who see what is wrong with Babylon and what is in our hearts that makes up Babylon. And we need to see how it's going to end. And we need to learn to live as citizens of a different city. We need to be able to look at the culture of our day with its consumerism and its shallowness and its celebrity worship and its Hollywood dreams and its, its capitalist emptiness. We need to be able to look at it all and know that we don't ultimately belong there. We need to learn how to live like exiles and we need to keep finding ways to help each other do that. Now that won't mean, I suspect, that we all stop going to uni and stop making friends and uh, buy a little patch of land somewhere in Glebe and get up the Sydney Uni Evangelical Amish community. Um, but it will mean that we'll stand out, we'll stand out like a sore thumb as, as different. Those people in that New Testament letter, First Peter that it was written to, were people who were um, vulnerably, painfully different from the community of the friends that they'd grown up with, the pagan friends that they'd 
grown up with there in, in ancient Turkey who now um, laughed at them and reviled them and persecuted them because of how different they were. It'll mean that we'll be standing out as different in our dreams and our values and our lifestyles. It'll affect all the little things of life, all the little things, like what we watch on TV and how much we watch of it and the sort of stories and images we fill our imaginations with. It'll mean that we're not slaves to fashion, either in what we wear or in our ideas. We're not kind of um, at the whim of the, the, the swinging of the academic pendulum to and fro and all the academic fads and fashions of our, of our day. It'll mean that we are, our conversation isn't full of all the trivialities of, of celebrity gossip and food and, and wine and real estate. I suspect it'll mean for most of us that we own a lot less stuff than our neighbours do. That we live by a very different set of values. We value very different things. Most of all, it will mean that we live a life with God at the centre. That we talk to him and read his word and consciously live as followers of Jesus. It'll mean a very different kind of life. It'll mean a life, um, the life of exiles who are citizens of another city. I want to pray for us now. I want to pray for us um, that God would teach us that sort of life and that he would give us that sort of heart. That he'd show us more and more of what it means and he'd give us the, uh, the motivation and the strength to live it out. Will you pray with me? Now, Father, we thank you that there will be a day when you will call to account all human arrogance and you will bring to an end all the oppression of the weak by the strong and when the way that your name and the name of your son the Lord Jesus has been ignored and dishonoured will come to an end. Uh, Father we pray that you would make us uh, ready for that day. Uh, We pray pray that you would make us people who here and now live uh, not as citizens of this world city, um, not living by the same values or for the same things, uh, the things that you will sweep away with a, a broom at the end. Um, but as people who live uh, with our hearts uh, set on you and your home and knowing our home is with you. Set our hearts on those things that are permanent and real and solid, we pray. Uh, Teach us how to live for them. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.